Hello, my kind friends. It is November 5th, 2020. Welcome to the QTR Podcast. How the hell is everybody? We got a lot of stuff to cover today. It's been 48 hours since the election, kind of, almost. And, uh, well, I was taking some time to try to wait until we got some clarity around the results. That hasn't happened. So I figured I would wait until I felt sufficiently motivated to do a podcast again. And that time is now. And interestingly, it wasn't really the election that set me off. It was watching the Fed headlines come across the terminal today. We'll get to that all in a second. First off, let me remind my listeners that this podcast is brought to you by my patrons. Patrons are people that sign up and donate a monthly recurring sum to help support the podcast. I'm going to shout out those patrons. I'm going to give you my disclaimers as to why I'm an idiot and why you shouldn't listen to me. Then I'm going to implement what's known as a three-drink minimum. Following that, I will get on with the podcast. First and foremost, this podcast is brought to you by my exclusive gold and silver providers over at JM Bullion. JM Bullion has been in business for over a decade. They have done over $3 billion in sales. They are the only place that I buy my personal gold and silver from. That's right. That Since I started saying that on the podcast, you will not find another gold and silver order from anywhere other than JM Bullion because they are exclusively the only place that I buy from. QTR podcast listeners have their own friend at JM Bullion, Kathy, K-A-T-H-Y, at jmbullion.com. You can shoot Kathy an email anytime you want with any questions you want about anything, especially if you don't feel comfortable just buying off the website, you'd rather go through email, whatever. Kathy will help you out. She'll make sure you get exactly what you're looking for, and she will show you firsthand why JM Bullion has such a wonderful reputation over the course of a decade that they have been doing business. JM Bullion also recently released a... Gold and Silver Outlook post-pandemic PDF, which is very interesting reading. I will put that in the podcast description. The link is there if you would like to look at that. Check out my friends over at JM Bullion. Give them a play. Gold is ripping today. So is silver. Interesting, right? If only somebody, if only somebody had talked about gold. Hmm. Okay. Anyways, this podcast is also brought to you by my dear friend Pete Hedges over at the Trader's Path. The Trader's Path, I got to tell you, if you're looking to join an investment or a day trading community, the Trader's Path is the one that, fuck, I got to turn these speakers off. See, it's a low budget operation here, folks. I know not of what I do. The Trader's Path is run by my buddy Pete Hedges, who I am always seeing post pictures of red wine at night. Pete is living the bourgeois lifestyle in an unnamed location somewhere off of the Dollar contributed to him by his investment community participants. Does this mean that he's an asshole or it's a bad service? No, that's not what it means. It means that Pete's a capitalist. He started his investment community because he had uh, he was a member of a couple other ones and he hated them. He said, these people are clowns and assholes and I feel like I'm getting taken advantage of. So I'm going to start the trader's path and do something honest with people that I give a shit about, and that's exactly what he does. He offers a daily watch list. He offers a live stream. Pete offers investor education. He trades all different kinds of markets, red, blue, green, orange, yellow, volatile, non-volatile, stocks, options. Pete does everything. And on top of that, he's a hell of a nice guy, so I'm happy to recommend him. You get in touch with him. He'll give you anything you need to get you started. Tell him you want 14 days free. Tell him you don't want to use a credit card. Tell him you like to be smacked in the ass with a hockey stick. Pete will make sure that you get it done and that you get a chance to try out his service. That's Pete over at the Trader's Path. Hello. 
This podcast is also brought to you by my dear friends over at the Sanglucci Steam Room. Sanglucci and Wall Street Jesus are the original gangsters when it comes to tracking unusual options activity. Yes, everybody is doing it now. You turn on the TV, you see it, oh, unusual options this. You go on Twitter, oh, unusual options that, bing, bang, boom. Hey, Lucci and Wall Street Jesus were doing this shit way before I saw anybody else doing it. They, they started doing this back in the early 2010s. That's almost 10 years ago. What does that mean? That means that since they've been doing it the longest, they know what the hell they're talking about probably better than anybody else. I No joke. Again, another honest endorsement. I would trust Lucci pretty much before I trust anybody. Anything you need to know about the guy's credibility, just go back. He posts his P&L every month, including the month where, including the months where he gets his dick punched in by the stock market. He shares those losses, those months, and he owns it publicly. And there's something to be said for that. That guy's got some credibility. He's also a nice guy. He's also a friend of mine. He's going to be on the podcast this month. So check out the Sanglucci Steam Room. He will do anything you need to get him to get yourself started on that platform. 14-day trial, no credit card, this, that, and the other. Just reach out to Lucci. Tell him QTR sent you. He'll make sure you get a free trial. Trust me. He's my brother from another mother. We've got an agreement. We've got an understanding, Lucci and I. We do. He is also offering the 3LT playbook, which are the three rules that he used to become a seven-figure trader, and the Sanglucci Master Course, which is a bunch of shit I can't remember right now. Oh, yeah. It's uh, Lucci's um, financial education without the bullshit jargon and nonsense of having to deal with the local peckerhead in your Edward Jones office. Thank you. All of the links to those things are in my podcast description. You can check them out. This podcast is not financial advice. I am not a financial advisor. I'm not a fucking political pollster. I really don't have much of a clue as to what I'm talking about. You need to take everything that I say with a grain of salt. Nothing on this podcast has been confirmed by me. This is conjecture, speculation, rampant nonsense, and unconfirmed facts from here on out. So make sure you uh, keep that in mind. I highly recommend giving this podcast a one-star rating on uh, Apple Podcasts, where I'm collecting quite a few one-star ratings due to my general awesomeness. And uh, this podcast also has a three-drink minimum. What do you think about that? And that can be beer, if you're new, wine, whatever does it for you. Folks, I'm a libertarian, okay? I'm going to support whatever it is that you would like to do. And look at that. All the bullshit and nonsense is done in under seven minutes with seven seconds to spare. Oh, shit. I forgot my new patrons. My newest patrons, Daniel Reither, Derek Seifert, my friends at IntelliTrade checked in. Thank you so much at the IntelliTrade app. Eric Goodwell, Rumble in the Jungles in the Damn House, John Fiorello, The Grid, my homeboy, Carell, or woman, Marcos M., Matthew Stillwell, and Brett, what's going on? Scott Hagedone, still in the house. I appreciate you. Jay Mintzmeyer, Russ Valenti, my friends over at Traders for a Cause, my friends over at Corvus Gold. All of you people that have been supporting me, I forgot to bring the list up. I'll make sure that if I forgot your name this time, I'll say it twice next time. Jeffrey Pleeman, Tony Verdon, J.D. Bacon, still in the house. Appreciate you. And finally, how about Judy C. White, my friend Austin Clark, and just follow my friend Karen Alexander on Twitter because I had just had a nice conversation with her. She's not a patron, but she's a lovely person. All right. All of that being said and done, we've come in here with all the beginning stuff in under eight minutes with... 10 seconds to go, 9 seconds to go, 8, 7, 6, 
Five, some guy posting a link on YouTube saying the podcast starts here. Three, two, one, bing, bang, boom. All right. Welcome to the podcast. We got a couple of things that we want to talk about today. And by we and talk about, I mean me and shriek furiously while sweating into a microphone. So let's get that started. So the joke has been on me over the last 48 hours because I tried to put up this nice sage-like thing on my Twitter profile saying, look, I'm not going to live tweet the election as it happened. And good thing I didn't because I was reading a lot of my private messages with people on election night and I would have been embarrassed. (laughs) Because things seemed to have gone back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And then it looked like Trump was leading and it looked like Biden was leading. And it actually never really looked like Biden was leading at at any point, at least until I went to bed. And then like the rest of the nation, I woke up at, uh, you know, six or seven o'clock the next morning. And all of a sudden, Joe Biden was winning the election and the betting odds had shifted significantly. By the way, everybody keeps talking about those betting odds. I mean, I'm not an expert here, and I'm definitely not a uh, political pollster, and I don't use predicted a lot, and I don't really use sports betting sites a lot, but a lot of those political odds, I think, are trailing indicators. So people that were using those on election night as forward-looking indicators, I think, were mistaken, obviously. I was seeing the changes, you know, in voting happen, and then the odds reflecting that, and not the other way around. So... Those things were a backward-looking indicator. Regardless, right now, they heavily favor uh, Joe Biden to win the presidency. And uh, Trump's path, whether you like it or not, to maintaining the presidency does not look easy at this point. He is... So, as of right now, there are still, uh, you know, four or five major key battleground states that are being contested, that are being, you know, that are going down to the wire. Uh, There's Arizona, which has already been called for Biden. This was one of the big, interesting controversies, I guess, of election night, was the fact that Fox News had called Arizona so quickly. And, you know, the one theme I kept seeing on election night when they would announce the early vote totals in all of these states was that, Often, Biden would jump out to a major lead, and it didn't matter what state that they were talking about, which I'm guessing was the city votes being counted first, where they have the most robust technology to be able to count the shit electronically and then just punt it up to, you know, whatever the main source is, and the mail-in ballots, which, of course, we know were disproportionately going to favor the Democrats, and, the, you know, the mail-in strategy is interesting for a couple of reasons. You have, obviously, the major difference between an absentee ballot and a mail-in ballot, right? A mail-in ballot is basically where you just spray the country with ballots, regardless of whether or not people request them, and you allow people to just mail them back in. You know, they're supposed to sign, seal, and deliver them. And then, all of a sudden, you got people walking around the country... You know, I'm assuming from both campaigns, although the only videos I saw, and maybe this is just a product of my biased Twitter following, were Democrats, but I'm sure this happened in both parties. You have people walking around the country, you know, quote unquote, assisting elderly people in filling out their mail in ballots, (laughs) which reminds me of the old life insurance commercials. 
when Alex Trebek would come on and say, if you call now, we'll give you a free gift. You know, here's your here's your pocket calendar for 2021 and a pen that says Colonial Life Insurance on it. I saw one video where a woman kept saying, you know, she was giving a woman somebody, some worthless piece of crap. I can't remember what it was. Maybe one of the Project Veritas videos or something. But a woman was up on a, you know, a lady's porch, quote unquote, assisting her in filling in her ballot. Hello, Mrs. Johnson, you're 268 years old. You can't see, you can't move. Please allow me to assist you with this ballot by filling it in for you. And by the way, enjoy a muffin. You can stuff that in your mouth so that you can't complain or ask any questions that may prevent me from filling in this ballot the way that I would like to. (laughs) And actually, to be fair, in the video that I saw, the woman did say, I want to vote Democrat across the board. So it didn't look like she was being coerced too much. But uh, we, as we know, and as anybody can just tell by watching some of the commercials that pop up on Fox News, the elderly are a bit more susceptible, I think, to uh, to being coerced into doing things that they don't want to do. That's not a ageism thing. That is just, I mean, who do you think is buying all the my pillows? Let's get serious, folks. And then my favorite on the Fox News channel is the copper fit bracelet. You know, where are they? <laughs> and the copper fit Back brace. Are you? Ha- are, do you suffer from back pain? Hello, I'm Sebastian Gorka, and I suffer from pain, and I use Relief Factor. Okay, <laughs> why is Sebastian Gorka selling me some kind of pain medicine? That should be the first question people are asking. Do you suffer from pain? Everybody suffers from pain, folks. All right, I'm suffering from it right now. That's one of the most nebulous, catch-all, widest nets you could possibly cast in a commercial. Do you have some days where you're feeling good and other ones where you're not feeling good? Oh, people are sitting at home. Old people. Yeah, I do have days where I feel good and I'm not feeling good. Regardless, when you, uh, the theme we were seeing on election night was that Biden was taking the lead early and often in a lot of these states. And then as the electorate would come in and the rural areas you would see the little blue dots in the counties fill in uh near the cities first and then there would be a bunch of gray areas in all of the surrounding counties and then as the rural areas started to fill in you would see trump start to catch up and that's what happened in like uh north carolina in uh, in, a, in a couple other states where you saw Biden open up to a huge lead. It's what happened in Florida. Biden opened up to a lead in Florida because uh, you had Miami dating, you had Orlando come in first, and then all of a sudden the panhandle checked in. <laughs> the Clampets came driving into town in their beat-up Ford pickup truck and cast their ballots. Yo, some bitch, we don't vote no mail-in fraud, motherfucker. We go to the election day ballot box like we've been doing since the 1600s. We bring our guns, too, just in case anybody tries to take our liberty from us. (laughs) Those votes start coming in. And then all of a sudden you see Trump picking up some support in those states. So what's interesting about Arizona is this. It just seemed odd that in a state that you know is going to be relatively close and definitely has its cities and its liberal areas because you have the bleed in from California, but definitely has its rural uh, desert areas, if you will, that Fox News would call the state 
so early. And I'm just playing Monday morning quarterbacking here. Going into election night, I couldn't have told you shit about Arizona, except for some reason I always seem to have a layover in fucking Phoenix no matter where I'm going. Aside from that, I don't know anything about it. But the Trump campaign immediately protested that on election night. And it was odd that Fox News kind of called that first. So they brought the decision maker on, the guy in the Fox News room that is responsible for, I guess, making the projections. And very shortly after they made the call, and I'm guessing after the Trump campaign called Rupert Murdoch, I think it was reported, and reamed him out. The guy came on and said, hey, you know, there's a hundred, we're a hundred percent certain in our decision, which is odd because even though Biden jumped down to a lead, and again, I'm not certain how, what order Arizona did their counting, um, but assuming that the rural areas kind of bring up the rear and assuming that uh, the walk-in ballots and the people that went to vote in person bring in the rear, um, it is interesting that they would call it so early. And I, honestly, I think the notion of calling a lot of these states the projections, you know, you see the polls close at 8 o'clock in some states, and then, you know, at 8 o'clock, they're calling the state for one of the other candidates. I think that's just not a good practice. I mean, you want to be up to date, but it's an election, so let's see where the votes go. And especially now when you're getting into this time, this day and age, where states like, you know, Texas maybe are coming into play differently. Or now we're looking at Georgia maybe coming into play differently. Um, States that, you know, were... I think the political electorate has just shifted. I think the country is changing. Uh, You know, this was the most polarizing election in terms of decisiveness and, and, and vehemently supporting your candidate, I think, that there's ever been. And so with that comes volatility. So the idea that we're always going to have an idea of where things are going to land, you know, 14 seconds after the polls close might not be the smartest of ideas. And what we've seen in Arizona since then is you've seen uh, Biden's lead in the state uh, deteriorate. Now, he's still in the lead as of the time of me recording this podcast, which is about four in the afternoon Eastern on November 5th. Biden still has the lead. But the votes that have come in over the last 24 hours in Arizona... Um, Trump has made up some of the margin. So Biden, I think, was up by 100 and something thousand votes 36 hours ago. And now he's only up, I think, by 60,000 votes. Um, And so it would certainly, to me, seem like a more prudent strategy. And again, we're looking backwards here as Monday morning quarterbacks to not call these states as quickly as possible. You know, there's no real benefit, I don't think, to calling states early. I mean, yeah, I guess you want to be the first to report the news. I guess, you know, maybe is where they're going with that. They want to be the first to know what the outcome of the election is and and tell the people that. But if you make an error, if you make a mistake, um, like media organizations have done in the past, I think that that does way more harm than good. And then there's this idea that the media organizations are the one that are ultimately going to pick the presidency, which means if Fox has... Biden getting to 270, but CNN still hasn't called a state for Biden to 240. The people are like, well, what's the deal? Is he the president? Is he not the president? Fox says he's the president. CNN says he's not the president. What the hell's going on? I mean, there has to be some better objective nationwide way for these media organizations to just link up to uh, a consistent 
source for all of these states and for projections to kind of keep them online with each other. But, you know, we all know that that's not going to happen. That's just a pipe dream. So Arizona remains contested. And interestingly enough, I mean, Arizona could be a very real momentum shift if something were to happen and that projection turns out to be wrong. Uh, It doesn't look like it's going to be right now. But in a case where it was wrong, you would have 11 votes. You'd have 11 electoral votes go to Trump. And then you'd have to subtract them uh, from Biden. So I think if Trump could win uh, Arizona, if he could somehow flip it and then win Pennsylvania, I mean, I think he would win the election. And it's it's unlikely, I think, at this point, but it's not out of the question. And so for those things to kind of be up in the air 48 hours after Election Day is wild. I mean, it's wild. It's irresponsible on behalf of the media. And it speaks to the inefficiency of the voting process this year. I think uh, everybody's saying, well, take your time, count all the votes. Hey, I'm all for that. You know, but this idea of we're going to send people home in the middle of the night and they're going to come back in the morning. I mean, I think people should just kind of be working to tally up the votes after the polls close. Doesn't mean you have to send everybody home. You can keep people on eight-hour shifts. Amazon distribution centers have people that sort packages and deal with logistics on a 24-hour basis. So why can't we do that for the nation's election? It seems odd to just tell everybody at, you know, midnight, all right, we'll take the night off, we'll reconvene here at 10 in the morning as the rest of the election unfolds, and then you have what? You have paper ballots sitting around? Who's providing security? Where, you know, where are these things being stored? It's like an Ozark when he leaves his $8 million in his suitcases under the bed of his motel and then tells his kids, hey, stick around the motel room and just watch this, you know, watch the room, make sure nothing happens, right? You're like... All right, well, why wouldn't you just want to stay with it at all points? And I know that there's cameras inside of the polling centers, and I know that there's security and things like that, but it would just seem to me to be far more prudent to just say, all right, a state can close up its uh, counting and uh, ballot centers, whatever the fuck they're called, once all of the ballots have been counted for the state. That's it. And you should, It's like the Halloween store that comes around every year, you know? Every year that abandoned store in your neighborhood turns into, you know, whatever, Halloween Express. And they show up in September and it's stocked uh, with Halloween costumes. And then on November 2nd, they tear the store down. They go away for another year. And if you're lucky, you're in a neighborhood where it then turns into the Christmas store, you know, right around Thanksgiving and through December. But you can do the same thing with the, uh, with the ballot counting. And so I don't know if that idea... If there's some legal reason why they can't do that, I mean, to me, that just seems to be common sense, which wouldn't surprise me. That's probably why nobody has adopted it. But at this point, I think that we have learned a couple of things, one of which is that we definitely need more organization next year over the mail-in balloting thing, uh, or next election, rather, over the mail-in balloting thing, if we're going to do that again, because... The way that mail-in balloting differs from absentee balloting is stunning. And I'm not going to pretend to explain it all right here because I don't uh, I don't really know the ins and the outs of it. But generally, the difference is an absentee ballot is a ballot that you request. And so then you're on file as having an absentee ballot. And so when you go to the polls, I think that is uh, marked that you have received an absentee ballot. And so I think if you try to go vote in person, they don't let you... 
And mail-in ballots, again, are just kind of sprayed across the nation. And so everybody kind of gets one. And then they're all out there. It's like, think about junk mail, right? This is a very good analogy. In the, uh, in the postal service, they call it marriage mail. That's what my dad used to call it when, uh, when he worked as a postman. But you think about marriage mail or junk mail. It's that big clump of circulars that you get like every Monday. And usually it's one nice glossy uh, sheet of paper. And then on the inside, you have all your circulars for all of your local places. You got your Walgreens, your Rite Aid, your ShopRite, your Pathmark, bang. And it comes in this big clump of shit that sits in your mailbox uh, once a week. And just think about that. That is something that everybody gets, meaning you don't have to request it. It just shows up in your mailbox. Most people hate it. It's like that Seinfeld episode where Kramer's like, I just want to cancel my mail, you know? (laughs) He just doesn't want to get all this shit anymore. And anytime you look on the side of the road and you see litter and crap and garbage, what do you always see? You see those circulars. They're just laying around there. Your Rite Aid coupons, your Pathmark coupons, your Clipper magazines, the value pack envelopes, they're all over the place. Why? Because nobody requested them. Nobody wants them. Nobody gives a shit about them. They just show up, they just show up and then they fucking have to wind up somewhere. And the mail-in ballots are kind of the same way. They just show up for everybody. And if you don't want them and you don't want to do anything with them and you don't need them, then they just wind up somewhere. And to me, that's a little disconcerting. And I'm not coming out and saying, well, there was massive, you know, mail-in fraud that altered the course of this election. I'm not prepared to say that right now because I think the right thing to do is to go based on any evidence. And I think the Trump campaign is going to try to make as many legal charges toward uh, that angle as they possibly can or as their funding will allow. And if they turn up direct evidence, then I will be more than happy to entertain that direct evidence. But until such time, I don't have direct evidence. Maybe it's out there and I haven't seen it, but I don't have it. And um, so I'm not going to go there yet, but I will say that I find it interesting. And four years from now, we better have a better fucking strategy for that than we do now. I feel like what I saw was what most people saw, which was I went to bed at two in the morning and it looked as though at that point uh, Trump was in control of Michigan and Wisconsin. And then all of a sudden, you know, votes came in for Biden and uh, in both states. And that could be a factor of how their mail-in ballots were being counted Again, mail-in ballots were a disproportionate amount of ballots in general this year. And if those states didn't count the mail-in ballots first, you would have to assume that they're commingled with the rest of the results. And I don't know if that's the case with those two states. But what I did see was that New York Times chart that showed these two spikes in Joe Biden's ballot counts for both states. That occurred, I think, one at four in the morning and the other at five in the morning, which I just thought was interesting, like many other Americans. I think, look, I think a lot of people have this wrong. I think a lot of people are are looking at these charts and saying that's immediate, 100% evidence of absolute fraud. And I'm not there yet, but I really haven't seen a great explanation for both of them yet. Uh... 
I privately yesterday asked a bunch of people, some of the smarter people that I know, you know, what what the hell happened here? What is this thing that everybody's talking about? Why do I see these two straight lines up in Biden's vote count at certain points in the night? And one of my smarter buddies sent me a Snopes article that said, well, in it was in one of the states where they claimed it was a typo. Somebody had punched in the wrong number. And then all of a sudden at, you know, four o'clock in the morning, that number was corrected and bing, bang, boom, the uh, Biden vote total shot up in that state and that was it. And I said, yeah, but what about the other state? And I didn't really get a great answer from anybody. You know, the question is, does that kind of typo lightning strike twice? And while I saw corrected charts over the last couple of days, showing smoother lines in Biden catching up to Trump in those two states. Because again, the, the two charts that were published by the New York Times, I mean, they didn't they didn't immediately show uh, they didn't show Biden gradually catching up and taking over Trump. They showed two straight lines up, which, you know, were votes all for Biden and not for Trump. So something happened there, whether it was legitimate or not. If it was a typo or if, you know, something happened where Biden votes didn't get counted, then that explains it. And they were just Biden votes. But I don't know the exact answer yet, and I don't know the reasonable answer. And I certainly see enough of the conspiracy theory kind of uh, fraud angles to it. But I'm confident in kind of knowing that if there's an angle there, and that needs to be questioned, I'm sure Trump's legal team will hash it out. I mean, the truth kind of has a way of coming to light in these situations. And you have an entire nation looking at that now. So I I feel like if there is an aberration there, we're going to get to the bottom of it one way or the other. But I don't want to speculate and I don't want to take one side or the other yet. I will say, like with all of the battleground states, I'm just watching very closely. I'm, I'm watching very closely. And you know what? I'm not against... Given the fact that the election this year was so different in the way that it was conducted, I'm not against all of these recounts and legal challenges and, you know, all of these. I'm not against looking at the results with a magnifying glass this year, just given the way things were done. People are posting things online. I don't know if they're credible or not. This guy's dead and he voted. Okay. Well, we should look into that. Hey, does it become a pattern? Well, we should look into that. Sure, somebody posted today. Well, it's interesting that, you know, 50,000 more people in some state voted for the president, but also didn't vote for the Senate in that state. Well, that's kind of odd. You know, sometimes when you fill out a ballot, you fill out everybody on the ballot. A lot of people, they vote the entire party line this way, the other way, or whatever. You may not vote for the attorney general every year in your state. But often the Senate, if you're going to take the time to vote for the presidency, you'll vote for the Senate as well. So I think those things are peculiar and they should be looked into. And I think all of this stuff is going to be looked into. So I'm not really worried about it. Um, I think all things being equal, given the way the landscape sits now, though, it looks like Biden is going to win. He has way more roads to win at this point than Trump does. Trump needs to mount a vigorous legal defense and then needs to be successful in doing that. And that just, there's a lot of people that are not going to like it, but uh, especially people that, you know, err on the conservative side. But I don't think that 
he has a chance. I just being a realist, I don't think that he has a chance. Now, is that to say that it's completely fair and square? If you listen to my podcast, I mean, you know, I don't think it's completely fair and square. I think that a lot of the news media had their mind made up about this election years ago, not just, you know, over the last 48, 72 hours. And when you talk about something like the early ballots going in, and then you see something break late in the election cycle like this news about Hunter Biden, well, you know, you have a you have an inordinate amount of ballots that have been filled out in September and, and prior to that that didn't really get to consider that. And then you consider the fact that, you know, whether or not you think that that story was covered fairly or not, uh, there are a lot of people that had already voted at that point. Um, and certainly we know that the mainstream media and big tech didn't take the time to uh, adopt and fully flesh out that story either. So who knows what kind of difference that would have made. And that goes into a broader conversation about the media in general and how they cover politics and their bias. Um, and so you could kind of take the Hunter Biden story story rather, and you could expound that uh, over a broader scope and say, well, you know, Trump fucked a lot of things up over four years, but it didn't really seem like the media gave him credit for one thing that he did. And whether you like him or you hate him, you have to admit, I mean, throughout the course of his presidency, he struck a couple of peace deals in the Middle East. He was nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. We hadn't been in any wars. He pulled a lot of troops out of uh, countries where we had troops. I mean, those things used to be Democratic talking points, right? Anti-war. Um and it's funny, I was watching an old George Carlin video the other night with a buddy of mine. We were talking about the election. This, I think, was the night before the election or two nights before the election. We are listening to all this stuff that George Carlin was saying. And we were talking about the issues of the election. And I said to him, you know, oh, man, I love George Carlin. He makes a lot of sense. And my buddy said, well, you know, he was a staunch Democrat, right? And I said, yeah, but listen to what he's saying. And he was on a point in one of his rants where he was talking about ending war and peace and bringing the troops home. And I turned to him and I said, you know, that's really what Trump's policy has been. He's been bringing the troops home. So if you're going to vote based on policy and not based on personality or identity, um, I think it would be interesting if you considered what he has done. But he, like a lot of other people, and this is in everybody's fair right to do so, uh, they don't do that. They vote based on, you know, what they perceive as character and personality. And certainly I have beefs with uh, John, tr- with uh, Trump's character and personality uh, in certain ways, and I've said that publicly. There's also a non-politically correct side of him that calls it like he sees it and calls out bullshit uh, in a way that I enjoy hearing uh, as well. Sometimes he just calls out bullshit and he doesn't even know he's doing it. He's just running his mouth, but sometimes he gets it right, you know? And so this idea of not being politically correct all the time and draining the political swamp and the country being tired of these career politicians, it holds some gravitas. And we saw that in the results over the last 72 hours. So I think that Biden will walk out of this as the president. I'm encouraged by the fact that there is going to be gridlock in Congress. I would have been very worried about the Democrats taking Congress too. 
I think that there are some people on the left, just as there are on the right, that are extremely misguided. And I think that if the Democrats had taken Congress too, there was potential to do enormous damage to the fabric of our country. So I'm encouraged that uh, the system of checks and balances will be in full throttle over the next two years at least in a Biden presidency, in a Biden administration. Hopefully he can hang on to the office for a couple of years at least because one of my biggest fears would be Kamala Harris stepping in as president of the United States, which is just when you look back at the Democrat strategy, it's difficult to find anything more asinine than what they did. I mean, you could argue that the results of this election hopefully will confirm to them that identity politics is a terrible idea. And very much so, the pick of Kamala Harris as VP, I think, came down to identity politics as well. I mean, she did terribly in the primaries. Many Democrats that I talk to find her extremely difficult to listen to, myself included. Obviously, I'm not a Democrat, but there is a level of authenticity with her that I think rivals Hillary Clinton in some ways. And I have said on this podcast and said to people privately over the last 72 hours, I don't think the Democrats could have done a worse job in picking two candidates for this election. And I think between the poor choice of candidates and this commitment to identity politics and extreme wokeness that the Democrats really turned off a portion of their base that would likely vote for them and, I think, incited a lot of conservatives to get out and vote that may have not gone out and voted otherwise. I think that because the two extremes here, the two political extremes were so wide, the gap was so wide, and it was so much polarization that, you know, everybody kept saying, oh, the, the, the high voter turnout is going to be a marked positive for the left. And that is generally the thought process, right? If you can turn out 70% of the electorate, you're going to get a Democratic win. I mean, if you talk to political strategists, that's what they say. And so one of the worries was that with the enormous amount of mail-in ballots and early voting, hundreds, uh, there was over 100 million early votes cast, that the election was kind of already a foregone conclusion for Democrats at that point, but it wasn't. What you saw was you saw the right show up to the polls. And so while turnout was elevated, like in Florida, for instance, you had several million more people vote than voted in 2016, which is crazy. Trump still carried the state, albeit not by as much, I don't think, as 2016. But he did it because of places like Miami-Dade, where he was able to turn out a larger portion of voters than he did in 2016. And Miami-Dade is really interesting. You know, all of election night, I listened to Jake Jake Tapper on CNN lecture about what the differences in Latinos were. He kept saying, your Latino, your Cuban Latino is a little bit different than your Arizona Latino, which is different than your Mexican Latino. It's like, all right, thank you, Jake Tapper. Thank you, old white guy on a news station, right? 
<laughs> you imagine if Fox News tried to go down that, well, your your Cuban American's a little bit different than your Mexican American, they would be fucking skewered. But I think what happened in Miami-Dade and why Trump was able to elicit this giant turnout of Cuban-American voters and Latino voters is because they're probably familiar firsthand with the effects of socialism and why it doesn't work, (laughs) you know? 40 miles off the coast of Florida, you go over to Cuba and you look around, it's like you're living in 1960. So I think the Democrats would do well to reassess this strategy of embracing this extreme socialism and to try to bring things to a more measured spot. And there was some Democrat strategist call that happened this afternoon. I was reading the notes on it, but I forget the names of the people that were involved. But basically, basically, the gist of what the call was saying is we can't do this again. We we can't keep talking about defunding the police. We can't keep talking about socialism. You know, we have to pull things towards the center more because they realize that even if they win, this turnout was a huge statement, not just for Trump, but for the nation. It was proof positive that even though the left was angry and rioting, and flipping out in major cities across the U.S. And even though the left made racism a huge issue and made identity politics a huge issue, that you can do that to a degree where it is going to inspire people on the right also to turn out. The gate can swing too far in the other direction. And I know a lot of people that went out and voted For Trump, because, you know, out of spite. They voted out of spite. And I think that that's why you saw Trump's numbers in the African-American community and in the Latino community come up. I think a lot of that has to do with the pandering. And, you know, again, going back to identity politics. You can only pander to an ethnic group a certain amount before it becomes... Wildly obvious that you're pandering, number one. And as a result of that, it turns into an insult instead of aligning yourself with somebody, right? You ever see Malibu's Most Wanted when he, the white guy's walking around sagging his pants with his visor on sideways? Or remember Seth Green and Can't Hardly Wait? (laughs) Yo, I gots to get me some honeys tonight, you know? And what happens? He gets his ass kicked by the black guys. Because he's not black, but he's acting like a black guy, right? So you can be Seth Green and can't hardly wait. <laughs> what a great movie. Yo, I gots to have sex tonight. <laughs> I'm going to watch that shit probably this weekend after a couple of beers. You know, I left a comment for Andrew Yang on Twitter yesterday who had written something about, you know, I think we're going to be okay. What what are we going to learn from this election? I forget what he said. But I said to him, you know, the one thing I liked about Andrew Yang, once I got past his economic policy, which I really didn't like from the get-go and um, was very harshly critical of, once I watched Andrew Yang speak, though, a couple of times, I really started to like him a little bit more. Not 
because of his economic policy, but because of the way he carried himself. When the discussion on the primary stage was about identity politics or it was about singling out, you know, one group and everybody would get into this contest on stage of who's going to pander to Latinos more, who's going to speak more Spanish on stage. He always kind of took a step back and would re-pivot and say, well, I think the best thing for all Americans, and then go with his point from there. And there was something about that that I really liked about him, because I thought that that's a very measured way to look at things. And I think by putting everybody on that level playing field, you're really honoring everybody as an individual more than trying to single out groups and say on The Breakfast Club that you carry hot sauce in your purse like Hillary Clinton does. Like, <laughs> I, I know I mentioned that a lot on this podcast, but I, I can't get over that. I can't get over how fucking stupid that is and, and how obvious that is. You know, and Biden playing Despacito on his cell phone. Like, he just had that queued up. I was just listening to this on the way in, folks. By the way, let me just, let me just put on the first song on my playlist that I'm currently listening to right now. Oh, it happens to be Despacito. Okay. <laughs> Remember like eight years ago or 12 years ago when John McCain had Daddy Yankee come endorse him at a, uh, at a political rally? He was at some middle school somewhere. I think in Arizona, actually. And so I'm happy to introduce my good friend, Daddy Yankee. You know... <laughs> <laughs> and Daddy Yankee comes in with, you know, the shades on and the $10,000 true religion jean suit. And, you know, he's standing there trying to explain why he wants to endorse John McCain. <laughs> that was like when Trump invited. And then at the end, John McCain looked into the camera and he said, thank you very much, Daddy Yankee. <laughs> it was so fucking ridiculous. And then, you know, Trump had little little flip come up and endorse him at one of his rallies. Folks, I'm happy to have Lil Pimp. Is it Lil Pimp? Lil Flip? I don't know. Come on up. Why don't you come up here on stage and say something? And, and Lil Flip got up on stage and he was just like, he's like, well, man, you know, you got to vote for Trump because, you know, vote Trump. And the place clapped. You know, 40,000 people out in the middle of rural America looking at Lil Flip. Like, nobody's ever fucking heard of this guy before. Nobody's ever seen him before. But, okay, here he is, you know. I'd never heard of him, actually, before that. I'm, I'm getting to that point where I'm out of touch with uh, new music. And I'm very happy about it. My music just stopped somewhere. Like, 2008, everything just turned off. And my brain stopped accepting new music. And I think I'm better for it, actually. But that's a different discussion for a different day. Thank you, Daddy Yankee. <laughs> Please accept your colonial pen free gift. <laughs> so I don't know what the hell is going to happen with the election going forward. I mean, I, again, it looks like looks like Biden's going to be the clear winner. I mean, it'll be clear for some people. It'll be less clear for others. But to me, it seems clear that, you know, Biden has way more, uh, many, 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 many more paths to the presidency than Trump does at this point. Interestingly enough, I just saw a moment ago, somebody put online that Trump is considering running for 2024. You realize if Trump decides that he's going to run again in 2024, that that story will overshadow Joe Biden's entire presidential campaign? I mean, if Trump comes out and says he's going to run in 2024, the media will immediately pivot to that. 
the media the media will immediately make that the story and nothing Joe Biden does will be picked up in the I don't think the media is super stoked on covering Joe Biden to begin with. That's a different story for a different day. But I think if Trump were to say that, if he were to say, hey, I'm already looking at 2024, I think that becomes the story. And I think we just get four more years of why it's a terrible idea to vote for Trump in 2024 from the media. And Joe Biden just sitting in the White House like, am I even here? What is this? Is this the Oval Office? (laughs) Does anybody care? You know, this transitions nicely into the next point that I want to make, the last point that I want to make, which is I said privately before the election that it almost doesn't matter what the results are because the real deep state in this country is the Federal Reserve. And somebody put this funny graphic up the other day. Four scenarios that can happen. You know, it was a uh, a grid. And on the left, it had Trump and Biden. And on top, it had, on the uh, x-axis, it had, uh, you know, GOP Congress or uh, Democratic Congress. And all four boxes said the same thing, which is more monetary stimulus to stimulate asset prices, to inflate asset prices. And that's the truth. You know, I tweeted out a couple of weeks ago, the Fed is the real deep state. You know who understands this is former NFL player Russell Okung, who I started following on Twitter. And if you don't follow him, you should follow him. He is, talk about unlikely people to come out and really understand the system and how it works. But Russell, who I think he's a big Bitcoin advocate also too, Russell gets it. And you can tell that he gets it because as soon as somebody starts to understand how the Fed functions as a part of the global economy and how central banking functions as a part of a global economy, they remain for the most part in a constant exasperated state of disbelief. Just really at how fraudulent it is, how nefarious it is, and how stupid it is for people to believe that these guys hold any solution to global economic problems. And I can tell by reading the tone of Russell Okung's tweet, tweets when he puts them out, that he gets this. He's got that same kind of exasperated disbelief. And I think the night before the election, I tweeted out, no matter what, the market is going up. And that's really the truth, because the market is a function of the Fed. It's not, you know... Donald Trump continued what Barack Obama was doing in terms of the government and how it relates to the Fed. Their policies have been print money to bail out corporations and the rich while throwing the electorate and the citizens of the country a little breadcrumb, $1,200 to shut them up. Think about the trillions of dollars that corporations got as a result of the COVID stimulus And the citizens of this country, here we are, seven months into this fucking pandemic, and the the average Joe hasn't gotten more than $1,200. And nothing about Trump's relationship with the Fed is different than Barack Obama's relationship with the Fed, but for the fact that I think Trump pushed the Fed even more for lower rates and for more stimulus. 
So the Fed is the one constant that remains the same no matter which political party is in office. And that is really the definition of the deep state, right? The deep state are the people that are in control regardless of who the elected officials are. So you can have your deep state conversations about George Soros and the FBI and the CIA or whatever you want to talk about. But really, things that are bipartisan issues that aren't just agreed upon in a bipartisan way, but are ignored when we talk about economics and we talk about the state of the economy in the country, we don't even address the Federal Reserve or the impact of of printing money on the country or the integrity of the dollar. It doesn't even come up. So if both parties are willfully ignorant to discuss something, as in I think they both understand it, but they both choose not to discuss it because the Fed is being painted as this objective body, well, that's really frightening. Isn't that your deep state? So am I surprised that equities are rallying now? No, they were going to find an excuse to rally no matter what. And let me lay it down for you real quick. In the case of a Trump victory, equities would have rallied because it would have been perceived. Really, all the media has to do and all these dumbass analysts and strategists have to do is just come up for the excuse du jour of why the market's rallying. Their goal really isn't to tell you which way the market's going to go. The goal is to come up with creative excuses to explain why it only goes up. That's really the job of analysts and strategists. Because the Fed is going to be the rising tide that lifts all equity boats regardless. So if both parties agree that the Fed can't be touched and the Fed's going to do what it's going to, you know, what it's been doing for the last 40 years, which is sacrifice the dollar to hold up asset prices and, you know, encourage inflation, then really the only thing left to do is to make a package up a real world excuse for the everyday person to understand as to why stocks only go up. And I think people, for the most part, they either don't get it or they're willfully ignorant because they don't mind seeing their asset prices go up, at least in nominal terms. It's when people understand what's happening in real terms that the lens starts to widen a little bit and you start to get your red pill scenarios in that situation. So the if Trump would have won and the Congress would have stayed, you know, Republican, the excuse would have been that it's vanilla bullish for the markets. Lower taxes again and less regulation is what would have happened. So it would have been a continuation of the Trump policies that helped the market rip over the last four years. And that would have been your answer, you know. The same thing would have happened on a Trump win and the Democrats taking Congress. There would have been gridlock, but all of Trump's policies would still be in effect. And with Biden winning and having a GOP Congress, the narrative turns to, oh, well, gridlock is good because they can't undo what Trump is going to do. And also, by the way, if politically nothing can get done, everything falls on the Fed to keep the markets up. That was the narrative today, which is why you saw this huge rip in gold and silver. Because people are expecting that the Fed is going to provide the stimulus directly to the markets. 
There's not going to be this end around where there will be fiscal stimulus. Uh, It'll be monetary stimulus. In other words, not fiscal stimulus. And so that's why you see the price of gold and silver rip today, because people are coming to that realization. And if Biden would have won and Democrats controlled Congress, the narrative would have been, oh, there's stability here now that Trump's out. And we're going to have unlimited stimulus. And, you know, the Democrats would have been in control of everything. We would have been monetizing everything. I think if there was a blue wave, I said privately to somebody prior to Election Day, I think gold would have went to 2200 maybe in like two or three sessions. I think it would have been a disgusting rip higher if there was a blue wave. Because uh, most of the Democrats don't understand how the Federal Reserve works. And the ones that do, they don't really care. They want to embrace modern monetary theory anyways. And the only thing nobody's talking about is the strength of the dollar. And the dollar, the dollar index, hold on, let me turn around for one second. Uh, Yeah, okay. So the dollar index finished about 1% lower today on the session. I think the dollar would have gotten creamed in the event of a blue wave. And I think it could still continue to fall from here. So we will have to see. But it's not a surprise that equities are rallying. And then regardless of what outcome you had from the election, or almost regardless of whatever happens, you know, if they they flip the election tomorrow for Trump somehow, it's not going to matter. Because we're coming out of COVID. And I think there's also going to be this economic excuse that's ripe for the picking. So if you're one of these brilliant strategists and you're looking in your basket of items to explain why stocks only go up there's there's a few of them just there that i named all right depending on who's president and who has the congress then you're also going to have this universal scapegoat in saying well you know the pandemic's ending and people are returning to work and you know the economy is starting to come back as if the economy had anything to do with what the stock market has done over the last six months anyways because it hasn't but Undoubtedly, that will be touted as an excuse. So Jerome Powell, I don't know what happened today, if there was testimony or if they released minutes, but I kept seeing all the headlines come across, and they're just getting humorous at this point. Powell came out today and said, we haven't run out of ammo. And I think this is like just days after Bill Dudley said the Fed is out of ammo. (laughs) Right. So which is it? And by the way, I tweeted, you know, they, they put Powell on the cover, I think, of Barron's last week. So I tweeted that picture out and I just said, you know, why are we celebrating these people as heroes? Honestly, the Fed has one solution. What is the solution? This is what I wrote. Yeah, he's on the cover of Barron's and it says the winner. That's the name of the headline. So they got a big picture of Jerome Powell, and it says the winner. And I just wrote, they keep praising central bankers like they do something. They print money. That is it. It is a one-trick pony. It is a one-solution gig, right? Powell didn't, you know, do some beautiful mind-style math on the windows of the New York Fed and come up with some amazing monetary stimulus solution that the world didn't know about it. He walked into a room where there's a big giant green button that says print money and he hit it, which is the same thing that Janet Yellen did, which is the same thing that Ben Bernanke did. Push button, make money. Bing, bang, boom. You don't even need a PhD. You know, (laughs) 
<laughs> Are you capable of pushing a button? The woman in Idiocracy ordering the extra big-ass fries from the Carl's Jr. kiosk could be doing it, right? Push button, get money. There you go. That's it. Remember Mystery Science Theater 3000, the movie? Breach hole, all die. Even had it underlined. So I don't know why they're getting this immense amount of credit. And again, this goes back to, I think, the, I think the people, they just don't understand it. I think they just don't understand how it works. And on top of all that nonsense and bullshit, Creed is supposedly reuniting. That's all we need, another fucking 10 years of Scott Stapp. Oh my God, shut the fuck up. Jesus Christ. Creed. Creed, it's like peak 2020. We get the election, you get the pandemic, you get murder hornets. And now this asshole with the tribal tattoos and the long hair. Oh, God help us. You know, I hated Creed when they came out. And then they got into a fist fight with 311 at some hotel bar in L.A. This was like in, I think in the late 90s or the early 2000s. And and I think S.A. Martinez, who's my favorite member of 311, I think punched Scott Stapp in the face. I was so stoked about that when I read it. I remember I printed out the article and I hung it on the wall of my room. I was like, this is awesome. My favorite band just punched my least favorite band in the face. You know why that happened, by the way, too? Because Scott Stapp was acting like your typical tribal tattoo having, long hair having, you know, dickless, hopeless, worst human being in history, and was apparently drunk at a hotel bar, which is where people like the lead singer of Creed hang out at hotel bars, you know. Can I get some more free cocktail peanuts, please? And apparently made a comment to S.A. Martinez's wife. We're really going off topic here, but i got to find this article now. (laughs) Here it is from Rolling Stone. 2005. At Baltimore's Harbor Court Hotel on Thanksgiving night, members of Los Angeles Rockers 311, they're actually from Omaha, by the way, on a day off from their national tour, got into a fist fight with former Creed frontman Scott Stapp in town to promote his solo debut album, The Great Divide. 311 singer S.A. Martinez suffered a fractured knuckle as a result of the brawl, which the band says that Stapp started. (laughs) That's awesome. I actually, uh, 311 has a song called The Great Divide too. But yeah, he was in town to promote his solo debut. He probably just broke up with his band because his band probably hated him. They probably called it Creative Differences, which means he probably drank 16 Bud Lights on stage. They were probably Bud Heavies, actually, and then, you know, berated his band in the dressing room or something. Here's the quote. We had just finished dinner, and we were at the hotel bar to watch the Lakers game when Scott Stapp walked in being very loud and obnoxious, Martinez tells Rolling Stone. In fact, one of the first things he said was that he loved to fight. Of course, right? So he started doing shots and breaking the glass on the bar, almost hitting one of our crew guys. My wife and I moved to a table, and eventually Scott made his way over and sat down. He was looking for attention. Even before that, he had a wadded up a napkin that he lobbed in our direction. It was pathetic, and we tried to ignore him, but it was impossible. Then he made a pretty disrespectful comment to my wife, which I'd rather not repeat. But in no uncertain terms, the word fuck was used. 
That's when our drummer Chad Sexton walked over. Sexton said, I had run into Scott that day. We have some things in common, like the same producer, and we chatted for a few minutes. So knowing we got along earlier, I kindly asked him to not disrespect anybody and reminded him that we're all friends. That's when he sucker punched me, hit me right in the face. Martinez said, when Scott punched Chad in the follow through, he hit my wife. So then I threw my punch. I think the last time I got into a fight was in the third grade, but it was an instant reaction on my part. Peanut also came over, that's their bassist, and he got sucked into it, opening up a scar on his right arm from a recent surgery. Scott went down and his girl came over and sat on him to get him to stop, but he got up enraged, wanting to fight. After about five minutes, hotel security broke it up and kicked him out. Honestly, the hotel was really at fault for not kicking him out when he threw the first shot glass. There you go. That guy's getting his band together. The f- the fucking asshole from high school that everybody knows that had a, that drank too much and couldn't control his rage. Peak 2020, he's getting his band back together. And, gotta say, I mean, anybody that knows 311, not personally, but, you know, knows of the band, they're, they're, not, a, they're not fighters, you know? Their whole message is uh, about positivity and love. They're a bunch of fucking stoners. You know, but Essay's, Essay's an OG, man. Essay is like the, uh, he's easily my favorite member of the group. And he is, uh, yeah, he's not a dude I would fuck with. Essay is probably, you know, he's from LA, right? They're all from Omaha, but he's lived in LA, I think, you know, 20 years now or whatever. And, uh, and he's probably a pretty tough cat when it comes down to brass tacks. I don't think I would want to fuck with him. So anyways, Scott Stapp is getting the band together. Jerome Powell is on the cover of Barron's. We have an election that probably won't be decided until the year 2022, and COVID is hitting its second wave. And people ask me, they honestly ask me, why do you have a three-drink minimum? It's like, have you <laughs> have you turned on the news lately? Jesus. Another thing I got to say, I hate to say it. I hate to say it. It's going to kill people. By the way, you know, this election a hell of a lot closer than I thought it was going to be, than a lot of people thought it was going to be. But I said back in February that Trump's response to coronavirus, his initial response, is going to be what lost him the election. And I don't know if that's what, if that was an issue that could have put this election over the edge. If, if COVID doesn't happen, does Trump win re-election? I think he does. Um, I don't know how much of it, you know, an interesting poll I saw, by the way, on election day, both parties were asked what their most important issues were. Neither one of them had COVID as their top issue. Of course, the Republicans don't give a shit. They want to get about their daily life. But I thought it was interesting that the Democrats didn't have COVID as their top issue. I think racism was the top issue. 32% said racism, you know? So, which, you know... (laughs) It's, it's an issue, and it needs to be dealt with, and racism exists. But over the economy, over what's going on systemically, the Federal Reserve, I mean, we're close. You want to talk about widening the inequality gap, which is definitely happening? You're, you're moving down the right path in terms of the problems that you got to address. Now the question is, what is causing that? Is that a systemic racism problem, or is it a monetary policy problem? Everybody knows what racism is because at some point during their life they've witnessed it or they've been subjected to it or they've you know seen it talked about but nobody knows about monetary policy. 
So if both things were equal and the American electorate was informed of both of these items and they were informed of how monetary policy really worked, I'd be interested to know which one of those two items they would be more concerned with as it relates to the widening inequality gap. And conflating these two things and thinking that the Federal Reserve has some role in addressing either racism or climate change is insane because in order to keep this whole deep state notion of the Fed going, that it's some kind of independent objective party, it does not need to be getting into social causes, not saying that the cause of fighting racism isn't just because it is, but it's not the Fed's job to fight those causes. You know, capital can be put into the system and then allocated by organizations to do that, but it's not directly something the Fed needs to address, just like climate change. Even if you accept that climate change is an existential threat, it doesn't mean that that's part of the Fed's mandate to address that. It's not. The mandate is price stability, which of course (laughs) we know they're not doing, which to them translates to inflation of 3%, prices going up, cost of living going up 3%, right? Which of course isn't stability and jobs. And that's their dual mandate. There's nothing in there about the Iran nuclear deal. There's nothing in there about racism. There's nothing in there about climate change. There's nothing in there about whether you use paper or plastic at the grocery store. There's nothing in there about the Philadelphia soda tax. There's nothing in there about whether you have waffles or pancakes for breakfast. There's nothing in there about whether or not Burger King is better than Wendy's. There's nothing in there that says Jerome Powell is an epidemiologist. That's it. Price stability and jobs. That's what they should be focused on. And if you don't know how monetary policy works, you should figure it out. If you feel like taking a red pill. But uh, certainly you don't want to listen to me for advice. With that being said, I have some wonderful guests booked for this month. Hello, it's November 5th. I haven't done a podcast in a little while. Did Andy Sheckman blow your fucking mind on October 27th? By the way, if you haven't listened to the Andy Sheckman interview and you want some insight as to what is going to become the great global monetary reset, and by that, we mean central banks going back to a currency that is backed by something tangible instead of fucking fun coupons that our currency is now, you know, marriage mail, which is what our currency is now, toilet paper, Swiss cheese, You should go back and listen to the Andy Sheckman interview because he lays it out uh, and he does a very good job of doing so. So if you can listen to that last podcast, which I think is 227 and get to the end of that and not feel like you've been red-pilled a little bit, well then, uh, then I don't know. Then, you know, enjoy your tunnel vision and your remaining years on Earth. (laughs) Enjoy being willfully ignorant. I'm kind of jealous, you know, kind of wish... Maybe one day I'll walk out my front door and a donkey will just kick me square between the eyes and I'll just lose half my brain cells and forget half the things I know and then I won't have to worry about it. And the only thing I'll have to worry about is whether or not I want an English muffin or a bagel for breakfast. And that'll be a huge consequential decision in my life. Instead of walking out the front door every day wondering why we're here and where we're going. Jesus, and people wonder why I have a three-drink minimum. All right, folks, I'm out of here. Have a lovely night. Peace.